0: country. Uh, and, And only we could really have shown the world
1: that it is possible for enemies to become friends. Welcome to the Short Fuse podcast, produced by Elizabeth Howard and distributed by the Arts Fuse, the online journal of arts commentary and criticism. Our conversations are with artists, Writers, musicians, and others whose work reveals our communities through their lens and stirs us to seek change. James Baldwin said, Artists are here to disturb the peace. I'm Elizabeth Howard, your host. In this short fused conversation, I'm talking with Samea Hirsham and Eric Miller. Both are from South Africa. Samea is a photojournalist, and Eric is a documentary photographer. Their photographs were on view from February 21st to March 25th in the South African Cultural Center in New York City in an exhibition entitled Desmond Tutu, Then and Now. The South African Cultural Center opened in September 2021. The several galleries feature exhibitions of South Africa-based artists and those in the diaspora, providing them with a platform to share their work. Throughout the year, there will be programming around the arts, including literature, dance, music, and fashion. Samaya, you grew up in Cape Town. Now you cover news and cultural events for clients, including news agencies such as Reuters, the European Press Photo Agency, Getty. And your work has appeared in newspapers and magazines, including the Washington Post, LA Times, Irish Times, Guardian, BBC and others. You grew up under apartheid and were 13 years old when Nelson Mandela was released from prison in February 1990. You first photographed Desmond Tutu in 2009.
2: Hi, Elizabeth. Thank you. Yes, I grew up during the apartheid years in a very politically active family. My first experience with apartheid was when I was eight years old when we were protesting outside our school apartheid government they had a state of emergency and all the schools were closed so we couldn't go to school at eight years old I was tear gassed and chased by police that's kind of my first memories of the archbishop because he had come to my sister's high school, came to console a lot of the learners who had been beaten by police, arrested simply for going to school. Growing up, the Archbishop was a symbol to us of freedom, of hope, someone who was fighting for our human rights. And so in 2009, when I had the opportunity to photograph him, he was actually retiring or at least one of the many times he retired since then. It was absolutely surreal, not just to photograph him, but to actually speak to him. Very short conversation, but I was completely overwhelmed, I guess.
1: I know this is an odd question, but what does it mean to be South African? To live in, as Alan Patton titled one of his books, Ah, but your land is beautiful. I understand it's a very beautiful country. It is. It's
2: a very beautiful country. In Cape Town, we have a very diverse cultural community, many faiths, many religions, backgrounds, and really just a melting pot of cultures that grew over many, many decades. And we have one of the most beautiful cities, I think, in the world. To be able to grow up through apartheid where we were not allowed to go to certain beaches, we weren't allowed to go to certain shops, parks as kids. We had soldiers on the streets at night because there were curfews. We grew up every day constantly being harassed by police, tear gas, you know, Students, family members getting arrested, then to have someone like Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela fighting for us eventually in 1990. Great hope that freedom and democracy was coming to South Africa was met with huge excitement. Decades later, We feel a little bit despondent, I think, because a lot of those freedoms have not quite been realized by everyone yet. But I think if we continue to live in their legacy and continue those principles that they left us and taught us and lived, we have hope.
1: Eric, as a documentary photographer, your career began during the struggle against apartheid in the 1980s. You were working for a progressive photo collective, AfroPix.
3: AfroPix was a collective of photographers who fundamentally stood against apartheid and what it was doing. And so the unifying spirit and thread through all the photographers who were involved was an opposition to the apartheid policies. And... The work that we all did individually and collectively was to highlight the conditions under apartheid and to distribute those images overseas. Sumeya mentioned about the state of emergency, and during the state of emergency, a lot of photography was banned, a lot of coverage of news was banned, and newspapers in this country were restricted very severely. They were not allowed to publish anything that alluded to the struggle against apartheid. So newspapers were censored quite heavily. So the pictures were also sent overseas to solidarity organizations in Scandinavia, in the UK and the United States, where they were used and publicized and published in, in foreign publications.
1: In the post-apartheid period, you worked across Africa on assignment for many publications ranging from Time and Newsweek to newspapers, including the New York Times, Washington Post, Christian Science Monitor, and many others. And after Nelson Mandela's release from prison in 1990, you traveled to other countries in Africa to document famine and turmoil. And I, I understand you were in Rwanda to document the last 10 days of genocide. What was it like? reflecting on the chaos and the violence that you must have seen? It's a very big question, and it's been an issue that has sat with me
3: for most of my working life, which is how to make sense of the things that humans do to each other, either politically or legislatively or physically. And Rwanda was, even though it came after several years of photographing what was happening in this country, which was violent and abusive to human beings, it was still a shock to see the level of violence that people were capable of, of perpetrating on each other. So it was a very difficult, that particular um, assignment was extremely difficult. To handle at the time that I was there and afterwards, very often, even uh, till now, when I have to deal with those photos, I find it very, very difficult and emotionally stressful to deal with those pictures and, and similar ones from other countries. The name of Philip Gorevich's
1: book has slipped my mind at the moment, but I will remember reading in that book about walking into a church and and hearing something on his feet, and he realized that he was walking on skulls and bones. I never will forget reading that and just imagining what that could possibly have been.
3: Yeah. Um, I was in a church. I don't know if it was the same one as he describes. There were several. Um, I couldn't walk in. It was... It, it was not something I could do. i I ended up photographing from the doorway into the church. It's indescribable, but I do still remember some of those aspects of it yeah. What
1: does it mean to be a white
3: African? I you know, I don't define myself as a white African. i'm I'm first and foremost a human being. And I live in Africa, and I'm of Africa, and I've grown up here. So I feel very much part of where I am and what I am and and the community that I live in. But I recognize on the outside, there are definitions. So I recognize that as a white person, and and I I kind of joke about it sometimes, you know, not joke, but I, I refer to it as I grew up in a very protective, white, working-to-middle-class home. My mother was a single mother. She worked her whole life, and we always struggled, as it were, in that context. But I also grew up to understand later that that struggle that we had was not comparable at all to the struggles of most of the people in this country. And it was what drove me, in a sense, to do the work that I have done and to work as a photographer.
1: The most Reverend Michael Curry presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church in the United States described Desmond Tutu at a memorial service that was held on February 13th, 2022. And I thought we would listen to that.
0: That voice of that little man. You remember how little he was? Before I met him the first time back in the 80s, I just knew he was as big as LeBron James. <laughs> and he was bigger than that. And that voice, life is stronger than darkness and life is stronger than death. Love is stronger than hatred.
1: So now let's turn to the exhibition, Desmond Tutu, Then and Now. Eric, when did you first photograph Desmond Tutu?
3: I photographed him uh, at a church service slash protest meeting in Johannesburg. I, I grew up and lived in Johannesburg when I first started working. He came to address a meeting at a church in Johannesburg it was simply photographs I didn't get to meet him or anything until I came down to Cape Town in 1980s to
1: come and live here. So if we look at the timeline, Desmond Tutu was born in 1931. He, he eventually went to England, studied, and then he returned to South Africa in 1985 or around then, or maybe a few years younger, when he was elected Bishop of Johannesburg. And then in 1986, elected Archbishop of Cape Town, which was an extraordinary election for a Black African during apartheid. I was reading a book called The Book of Joy, written by the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. And the Dalai Lama, I think, mentions in that book that even Desmond Tutu's wife, Leah, didn't necessarily want to move back from England because of the restrictions that she and their four children would face. They would have to send their children away to school because the archbishop's home was in a white neighborhood where blacks weren't allowed to live. A lot of people would have said, I don't want to do that. And your photographs, Eric, are in black and white, which is kind of interesting when you go to the two galleries at the Cultural Center to see before, during apartheid and then after apartheid. When Desmond Tutu was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1984, in his acceptance speech, he said, the prize has given fresh hope against the pall of despondency hanging over the world, suffering, disease, famine, injustice, evil, war, hunger, and oppression. Apartheid had uprooted black communities and destabilized life and education, economic activity. So some of your photographs Eric, for example, there's one of a defiance campaign. There's another of a march on uh, September 13th, 1989, that Desmond Tutu led that was held against the ban on political protest. Then there's one where he's being carried on the shoulders of men walking across the beaches where blacks were not allowed. And he said, these are God's beaches. Since we cannot see the photographs, Perhaps you can describe some of these photographs and what it was like looking
3: through your lens. Both of those pictures that you described were taken quite late in the Defiance campaign and very very close to the end of it. So the picture where he leads the march in September 1989 followed a period of, of extreme violence where people were shot dead by the police in protests in various communities. And the Arch, as we used to call him then, and still refer to him most affectionately now, together with other religious leaders and and activists, called this march from St. George's Cathedral. Something like 30,000 people arrived, and they marched through the main streets of central Cape Town with banners, peace in our city, stop the killings, and that, that, that sort of thing. It was an enormous crowd, and up to then, the police, because of the state of emergency regulations which banned those kinds of marches, would act on them and either break it up with buckshot or rubber bullets or tear gas or various other means that they used. And on that occasion, they did not, and it was quite remarkable. And I remember being extremely conscious of this huge crowd, bigger than any previous demonstration during the state of emergency. And wondering where the police were. I knew they were around. I'd seen the armored vehicles in side streets, but they didn't interfere with this at all. And it was kind of a breakthrough to signify a change of attitude on the part of the government towards dealing with these kinds of protests. The beach photo that you described was around about that time as well. The month before, it was in August, 1989, and the big protest was a month later. The big protest in the street of 30,000 people had come about because the police had killed a large number of, of people in various communities. But the arch was concerned also, and he made statements and, and did actions, protests like this against microaggressions, but they're not micro. They, they were what Sumeya described earlier about her awarenesses of not being allowed in certain places. The best beaches were reserved for white people only. There were big signs on the beach. There's another picture in the exhibition where one of the signs is up. It says beach and sea for whites only. And there's a policeman patrolling in front of it, and it's cordoned off with chevron tape. And they tried to keep Archbishop Tutu off the beach. They had a lot of policemen on the beach. So the photo shows the arch being carried shoulder high by his supporters, but in the background are a number of policemen with police dogs. And they brought a helicopter in, and the helicopter was hovering very close to the ground blowing up a dust storm of sand, beach sand, into everybody's faces. They arrested a lot of journalists on that occasion. We ended up in several police vans, four or five journalists in a police van. They tried to block it. It it was impossible for them. And I think at that point, and by the time the big march happened a month later, I think they understood that this groundswell of public anger, public resistance, public rejection of the apartheid regulations and the state of emergency had gotten beyond their control.
1: And at the same time, there were sanctions. And this is probably at that point, the United States and the UK, who hadn't signed on early on, were also involved. When was the people just completely boycotted
3: the shops? Over the years, there were periodic economic boycotts within the country. If you're talking about within the country, unions, the unions called for boycotts. They called for work stayaways. Some brands or stores were boycotted uh, at that time, but it was supported as well by the outside sanctions. There's, there's. A, I mentioned earlier before the we, we started recording. I mentioned earlier there was a picture. In, is a picture in the exhibition where the archer arrived back from a trip to be met by pro-government supporters, calling on him to feed the hungry because they believed his sanctions were starving people, and that if there were boycotts and sanctions, they had posters that read, "Will you feed the hungry?" and "Tutu, go home." no sanctions for Bishop's Court, his, his home. So there was a lot of opposition amongst government supporters to what he was doing and his call for sanctions and his call for protest and support of the defiance campaign. Bishop
1: Curry remembered in his talk at the cathedral a sermon Desmond Tutu had delivered in Columbus, Ohio in the early 80s. We can listen to a bit of that.
0: I remember as a young priest and we drove to Columbus to hear Archbishop Tutu. And I don't remember his entire sermon, but I remember the context. These were the dark days. The memory of Stephen Biko and the other martyrs was fresh. These were the dark days when police were killing young men and people were disappearing in the middle of the night. These were the days when as James Weldon Johnson said, hope unborn had died. With these or similar words as best I can remember, he ended it by saying, I believe that one day my beloved South Africa will be free. I believe that one day she will be free for all of her children, black, brown, colored, white, Asian, all of her children. I believe that one day My beloved South Africa will be the land of all the rainbow children of God. I believe it. I haven't seen it. But I believe it. Because I believe in God.
1: Then you have a just stunning photograph of Nelson Mandela and Archbishop Tutu when Mandela was released from prison. You must remember taking that photograph.
3: Very much so, although it was a week after he was released and I wasn't in the country when he was released and I was mortified that I had missed it because we had waited for almost years for him to be released. And there were rumors of his release. And as journalists, I was working for Reuters and news agencies at the time. We would go rushing off to whichever prison he was in or when he was in hospital for TB treatment. Because of a rumor that he was about to be released. And then when he was released, I was out of the country. And I came back soon afterwards. Sorry, the picture was taken not a week, but uh, sometime after he was released. But it was the first time that I had seen them together. And they were like old schoolboy friends together. It was such a, a warm, chocular camaraderie between them. And it was quite apparent from their behavior towards each other and the giggling that the arch is so well known for. And the crowds around were, it was such a joyful mood outside the church. So, yes, I I remember that, those photographs and struggling to be in the right place as one does when it's very crowded.
1: In the Book of Joy, this book I've mentioned, it's a conversation between the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. The Archbishop comments that when Nelson Mandela went to prison, he was aggressive and angry. And then he was mistreated for 27 years, but he learned to understand the point of view of others. Samaya, in your photographs that are very different from Eric's because, well, first of all, they're in color and they're often showing the arts, as he was called, enjoying, enjoying life. So we see him drinking a chocolate milkshake. And I've, I've read that he used to love rum and coke and rum raisin ice cream, but he had to give that up for his help. And many of your photographs show him in much more of a religious setting, praying and meditating. Describe your photographing him and and perhaps the difference of how things had changed.
2: During the apartheid period and the period Eric photographed him and I would often see those pictures and it was a very tumultuous time fighting for freedom. The archbishop speaks afterwards of standing at funerals in townships where He was begging people to stop the violence. He was asking them to stop killing people. Basically, as you were saying, between Mandela and him, to have a bit of patience to find other means besides violence. And so when I started photographing him in 2009, he was, well, I mean, in the the first couple of years, he retired many times. Every year he would be retired and then go back to working at the office it was a very different time he was still fighting for the same things he was still as they say lending his voice to the voiceless by still taking up and using his name to highlight causes of human rights abuses not just in our country but in Palestine and in many other countries in Africa It was a lot more quiet time in his life, I would say, a time where he spent a lot more time with his family, with his grandchildren, later on with his great grandchildren. I feel very fortunate in a way that I got to spend a lot of time with him in a in a more quiet setting where you could actually speak and reflect on what was a very, very difficult and painful time in our country, you could then add the space to discuss it and talk about it. The hot chocolate was do a special service every Friday morning at St. George's Cathedral in Cape Town. It was really early in the morning so it would be, for the most part, the usual congregation, as we'd call them, plus often guests from abroad. And after the service, he would walk over to a coffee shop nearby the cathedral and invite everyone from the service to come and have breakfast with him. And he would have sometimes a hot chocolate and a chocolate milkshake, (laughs) which, you know, was absolutely hilarious. Basically to sit there and... Share a moment with him having a chocolate milkshake was just something that seemed rather surreal for someone of his stature, I guess. Over the years, I guess the more time I spent with him, the more you kind of saw him differently. There was the Desmond Tutu who was in the public eye and who had a certain role, a certain responsibility. And then there was Desmond Tutu at home with his family and friends. And and I was fortunate enough to be able to get to know both those people, I guess, Mm. in a way. When you talk about the Book of Joy, he spent a lot of time with with His Holiness doing that book. Mm. It's one of his dearest, closest friends. On his 80th birthday, the government denied His Holiness a visa to come to South Africa. And the Archbishop held a press conference where he was so furious. Everyone was concerned about his health at that point because he was so angry that the government would not allow this. Those are the things which stand out to me because he would stand up for what he believed in, even if it wasn't something that the government was doing at the time. He would speak out against it. Got to spend a lot of special time with him, working not just as a photojournalist for Reuters at the time, but I was the photographer for his foundation as well. And then later on, as he retired, Again, I worked and covered a lot of his family events, photographing his daughter's wedding and poor. Really just got to see the loving father he was, the loving grandfather he was. And I was at the baptism of his great-grandson, Azania. To witness him baptizing his great-grandson was absolutely... I don't think I have words to describe, you know, watching him hold that little tiny baby's hand. And and then a few years later, sitting with his, his great-granddaughter, Aliyah, that's the last time I really spent any time with him, which was just before COVID lockdown. We spent together the entire day. We had lunch, went to the beach with the kids and his daughter and granddaughter. And, for me, at the time, I just felt like it was the most perfect
1: day. How did you two meet? I mean, had you, did you know each other through your work or were you brought together when there was talk of this exhibition?
2: We were having coffee one day. So my exhibition had gone to Cupertino just out in San Francisco. Part of the exhibition, I was in London before that. We had done several workshops along with the exhibitions with school children, teaching them about the archbishop and what he's done and about his legacy. And when I got to Cupertino, I spent a lot of time explaining the story about the beach and the beach, only white people were allowed on the beach and the archbishop protested. And so it made sense to me that visually, I needed something to join to my exhibition that I didn't have to keep explaining. You know, this is what the Archbishop was like. This is why he received the Nobel Peace Prize. And so they could actually see all these images and moments that I was talking about. And an opportunity arose to do an exhibition in New York with Trinity Church. Eric had the images, we were talking about it, and it just seemed to to fit. I I recall that Sumeya had her solo exhibition of some of those pictures in various places,
3: London, Cupertino, and I think that I had been to a showing here and we talked about it, and I think out of that came the idea of combining then and now. It's a wonderful combination
1: of work. Africans have a deep religious faith. I don't know that the majority of white Americans necessarily understand this. Desmond Tutu and Martin Luther King are often compared. Charles Krathammer, writing in the Washington Post in 1986, said, King was forever telling people how to move. His means were as inseparable a part of his being and his message as his ends. King made nonviolence the cornerstone of his philosophy of social action. Tutu's two books, Crying in the Wilderness and Hope and Suffering, are a passionate, prophetic call for reconciliation and negotiation. But of the book's 62 speeches, sermons, and writings, not one is devoted to the theory or practice of nonviolence. For Tutu, nonviolence is a discipline, a matter of conscience. For King, it was that and more a weapon, a matter of hard political strategy. So it was interesting, and maybe both of you can reflect on this a little bit, although religion played such an important role in what he did, he was able to use it in a way that didn't interfere as much with politics.
2: I think that the was. Archers- is a very religious man,
1: was a very religious
2: man. But I also believe that I'm a Muslim. And we we believed in similar principles because of our faith. And I think that he's understanding and his belief in forgiveness and a way forward without violence is something which I, I believed in. And his religion is, in a sense, what kept him able to do. His faith was, was what kept him strong. And his belief in God for him was what helped him understand that forgiveness is possible, That Peace is possible through other means other than violence.
3: I think that the apartheid government ascribed to him more violence or or violence in terms of his preachings as a propaganda, you know, in the way that governments ascribe characteristics to their opponents, which aren't necessarily true. But it served the government. And I remember arguments with family members back in the 1980s, about, oh, but he preaches violence. I never heard him preaching violence. I heard him preaching God and love. And I heard him supporting people in their opposition to the state structures and laws that they were imposing on people. So I think that the belief that he was ever preaching violence was something that was propagated by the government and picked up by their supporters but it was not a manifest way of his communicating with people. And in later years, in fact, after Sumay and I had met and started doing this and we met him several times, I came to understand him in a different way and in a very, in a way that helped me deal with some, you referred to Rwanda and some of the other events that I've covered over the years. And listening to him later in later years helped me to understand some of those aspects of human, the abhorrent side of human behavior. So I've never seen him as propagating whatever the state used to accuse him of.
1: And you think of somebody like Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela who, who took really strong positions. And I was listening to a talk that he gave at Stanford University. And he's always funny. He always uses metaphor and stories and comes up with something and makes it... It's like putting a pill in, you know, jelly when you were a child. He tries to make you understand the situation. But yet standing up, there is no neutrality. If there's oppression, you need to take a position. If there's war... You need to take a position against that war. You you have to take a position.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of times he did use humor. Often photographing him was it wasn't even work. It didn't even feel hard because he he made you laugh all the time. But sometimes the the things he was saying were not easy for people to hear. So the humor and the chuckles and the laughter were like a little buffer so that it was easier, as you said, Mm. pulling your jelly, (laughs) your custard. It just made it a little bit easier to to hear and to absorb.
1: South Africa without Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu, where is the, the moral voice and leadership? If they were both alive, old men, still alive, what role might they play in sorting some of the political tension what will it take
2: i think the archbishop over the years has spoken out very vocally against the south african government the anc government at the time led by uh, jacob Zuma he mixed no words by saying At a press conference, I will not vote for the ANC saying that we still have children who go to bed at night hungry. We have children still going to school under trees. We have so much poverty in this country. And for all these years, they fought for freedom, for the right, for every person in this country. And I think that as he got older, he continued to speak out. But I think that the responsibility lies on us now. And I think that it's something that I felt so heavily when he passed away, that the responsibility lies with all of us, that we all need to do better. We all need to look at the lessons and the legacies of Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, Martin Luther King, it's, it's up to us.
3: I agree with Sumer and she indicated much earlier on in the interview as well that some of the work of the exhibition was to help inspire people about Archbishop Tutu and his engagement with the world and the things that were wrong in the world, not just in South Africa, but across the world. And he spoke out on a lot of those. But in their later years, both Mandela and and Archbishop Tutu were to some extent ignored. We've seen terrible things happening in this country with corruption, despite both of those men talking out about it. And I think Samaya is absolutely right that they need to be, we need to use them as an inspiration to spread their message of moral authority and peace and operating with integrity, with personal and and collective integrity. But it's now up to people in general to, to hear that message and to live like that.
1: What role do you think artists play in this? Have you read Damon Galgut, who just the South African who just won the Booker Prize in 2021 for The Promise, which is based on a white family's promise? And then, of course, the Nobel Prize in Literature in 2021 was also received by an African, Aldurazak Guna from Tanzania. So, do you think that artists, photographers, like the work that you're doing, will play a role?
3: I would certainly hope so. I grew up in a context in, well, I was born in the 1950s, so it was kind of a post-war context. And through my teenage and youth and whatever, I I heard when people were trying to make sense of the Holocaust and what Germans did during during, uh, the Second World War, there were often Germans saying, I didn't know about that, and I didn't know this was happening, and I, I you know, had no idea. And so part of my becoming a photographer in response to what I was seeing when I was around 18, 20, 21, and I started seeing what was happening around me, part of my response as a photographer was to document what I started seeing as a way of showing people what was happening. And my hope as a photographer is that the work that I did then and the work that I continue to do stands as some kind of a catalyst or an inspiration or something to people to see what is actually happening so that they can't turn around later and say, I had no idea what was going on part apartheid. I didn't know the police did that. And it happens all the time. Even these comments that that Sumay made earlier about having to explain to people about Features for white people only. It's incomprehensible to many. And that was just one particular example. There are many, many examples. and one of the driving forces for me as a photographer was coming to understand very early on that what the government did to a majority of people in this country is to tell them that your story doesn't matter anymore. doesn't matter. We're not interested in your story don't come to us with your story. And when I started going out as a photographer, people would come to talk to me and say, I want to tell you this and I want to tell you that. And when I would listen and you asked me the question earlier, my perception of myself as a white person, I understood that fundamental iniquity of saying to a group of people collectively, you don't matter and we don't care about you. And when somebody did, me as a photographer when I did pay attention to somebody who had a story to tell they responded very very positively and with a lot of trust and so I grew up from my early 20s starting to understand that that was one of the biggest things that had been stolen from people in this country was their sense of value and worth so my work has often been to try and in some very, very small and limited way, make a reparation and a a balancing of scales in that regard.
2: Essentially, with our work as artists, as photographers, the best you hope for is that your image or your work somehow influences someone to understand a cause that you're trying to highlight. And with the Archbishop in New York, we did several workshops with high school students trying to give them tools, skills to tell their own stories and that's something which in South Africa we didn't have either where the apartheid government took that away from us. They took away our ability to tell our stories, our own history. They took our history away essentially. So by using photography, we give people that power back to tell their own narratives mm. and to make them their own in their communities. And especially with young people today, it's something that they they really need to be able to do and understand. And, and the Archbishop himself, when Eric and I spoke to him, said that if it wasn't for photographers, journalists, videographers during the apartheid time, would say we were lying Mm. it was because of those photographs those videos they couldn't say we were telling lies Mm. so I think our, our jobs as photographers as artists are so so important especially in a time like today and I think that an example of the AP journalists in Ukraine in Mariupol just this past week. They were the only two journalists there and they documented horrific scenes. Um, If it wasn't for them, you could say it never happened. Mm. So I think we play a very, very important part in in bearing witness to the life that, that we live.
1: Well, thank you to both of you and, and to the South African Cultural Center for the exhibition, Desmond Tutu, Ben, and now. Thank you, Elizabeth.
3: It's a pleasure. Thank you as well for focusing on it.
1: The hymn being played at the end of this podcast was, we are told... Desmond Tutu's favorite. More information can be found in the episode notes. The memorial service for the Most Reverend Desmond Tutu was held on February 13th at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. Presiding Bishop Michael Bruce Curry's sermon can be found on the cathedral's YouTube channel. We thank the cathedral for letting us share his words. The title of the Philip Gurevich book I mentioned is, We Wish to Inform You That Tomorrow We Will Be Killed With Our Families, Stories from Rwanda. I want to thank the South African Cultural Center for mounting Desmond Tutu then and now and supporting this podcast. Thank you to Alex Waters for the many hours he spent working on editing this conversation. If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can connect with us through Elizabeth Howard at eh at You can find us on Spotify and on Apple, on Simplecast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions.